Well, good morning, folks. Glad you're with us today. I'm trying to get a little bit of something set up. Uh, my uh, computer is not actually working like it wants to be here. So <laughs> bear with me just a moment. Uh, but this morning we're going to be talking about um, and Hosea. Um, we're doing in Hosea, and we'll be doing uh, the 11th and 12th chapter of Hosea. So let me see if I can get my get my um, electronic stuff working right quick. I do apologize for that. There we go. Okay, it just didn't want to deal with me first thing this morning like it's supposed to. But uh, appreciate you being here today. You uh, notice I have a uh, uh, I have a tie on today, and um, I'm going to be um, sharing with the word this morning at a at a church. So I have an opportunity to speak, and so when I do have an opportunity to speak, of course. I try to take advantage of that. Uh, if you would, uh, get your Bibles and uh, turn to um, the book of Hosea. And um, it is one of the quote-unquote minor prophets. Hosea is an interesting book, to say the least. Um, not sure I would want to be Hosea, but, but um, God uh, provided uh, some great messages in there in Hosea. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we're thankful for this opportunity we had that we can come before you today and before these other people. And we can open up your word and we can pray and we can uh, study your word and we can learn from it. And Lord, we can see how the nation, the northern nation of Israel compares today to the nation of America and the United States and things that are going on around us today. We thank you, Lord, for all you do for us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us during this time of, of crisis, that you would be with us in everything we do, protect us, and help us, Lord, to be the witnesses, both in our neighborhoods and around the world. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Again, we thank you so much for being here and being part of that. Um, we are um, going to be uh, getting started in, uh, Hebrew, in Hosea. Love God loved the nation of Israel, and wanted her to be protected and blessed. He wanted it. I mean, he pleaded with them to stop their sinfulness, to turn back to him, but they simply would not. The northern tribe of Israel convinced themselves that because of the blessings of God that what they were doing was okay. Uh, it, they couldn't be too far off, because if they were too far off, God would be chasing them. You know, it's interesting that in America today, a lot of people feel that way too. God bless America. We hear, God bless America. Somebody wants to take God's name out of America. Wants to take the name off our dollar bills. Wants to take the, you know, the the take anything related to God out of the schools or, or out of government or anything like that. And, um, um, but they still would say that America is a blessed nation. We're a blessed nation. We're a blessed nation. We are blessed beyond what we deserve. Uh, so was the northern tribe of Israel. And uh, we'll see today that uh, God has a message for them. And I believe that God has a message for us today too. Let's look a little bit about the background um, The background for uh, uh, Hosea. First of all, the name Hosea is the same name as salvation. It's the same name as Joshua. And it's the same name as Jesus. So Jesus' name was also Hosea, or Hosea's name was also Jesus. So you can see that, that this is a this book is related to salvation. Um, 
This, this book here was the first of the minor prophets in the Bible. Minor because the length of the book, not because of the importance of the book. Yeah, little is known about Hosea. We know that he was a native of the northern kingdom of Israel. And um, we also know that Hosea and Jonah were the only prophets that we have from the northern kingdom. Because remember, they were taken away a uh, hundred years before Judah was. Most of Hosea's ministry was in the northern kingdom. Remember, this is the ten tribes that, that departed after Je Jehoram um, became, um, or after, the, after Solomon's son became king and then rejected uh, them and they actually split up with Jehu. Uh, we see that Hosea prophesied between 755 and the 710 B.C. Now, during this time, during the life of Hosea's ministry included four Judean kings, which was Uzziah, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. They were all part of the time period in which um, Hosea was ministering in the northern kingdom, in the, in the southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, his ministry included Jeroboam II, Zechariah, and Hosea. So we see those were the, the kings in the northern kingdom. He was a contemporary, by the way, of Isaiah and Micah as well, both of whom were prophesying in Judah at the same time. So the same time that Isaiah was prophesying and Micah prophesying, well, we had, Hose, Hose, we had um, Hosea prophesying in the northern kingdom. All right. The theme for this thing is basically broke down into two basic areas. One of them was the first part, which covers the first three chapters of the book of Hosea, includes the story of an adulterous wife and a faithful husband. And we're not, we don't have time today to cover the story of Hosea and Gomer, his wife, but there's a God, a, God had him marry this woman who, after they had children, went into what's called whoredom, and he ended up having to buy her out of that and bring her back into her back into his family. And he forgave her of all those things and made her back, restored her back again. So it's a story that God put Hosea in that situation so that he could do a comparison between Hosea and Gomer and God and Israel and how both parties were reconciled. So that's the first part. The second part of the book, which deals from chapter 4 through 14, and the part we'll be talking about today talks about the adulterous Israel and the faithful Lord. We know in the first four, chapter four through six, we know adulterous Israel is found guilty. In verses six through 10, we see adulterous Israel is going to be put away. And in verse 11, chapter 11 through 14, the adulterous Israel is restored to the Lord. So we see in today's lesson, we're not going to be talking about how the adulterous generation, we're going to be talking about how God restores the nation of Israel. The basic theme in this lesson is about repentance and forgiveness. The nation of Israel was scattered abroad because of their sins and rejection of God. They will, by the way, return to him uh, in, uh, to restore the family relationship with the Father in the last days. This has not happened yet. All of them are not back. But it's interesting that we have seen the... We have seen that the nation of Israel has been restored in 1948, I believe it was. They were brought back together. They were wiped out for centuries 
for millenniums there was no nation of Israel. They were scattered abroad. And uh, God used the Holocaust to allow these the nations of the world to come together to recreate the nation of Israel. And in 1948, the nation of Israel once began, again became a nation. So from 70 AD until 1948, there was no nation of Israel. See, God restored them because he's preparing for the end times. Now, this message today is really for everybody. See, God is using, he always used the nation of Israel as he planned to, by the way, to demonstrate to the rest of the world how God would deal with backsliders and how he will store them if they repent. God uses the nation of Israel as an example. Yes, they have some benefits and they have some disadvantages, you know, when you use somebody as an advantage. So let's go ahead and look in chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. It says here in chapter 11, um, beginning with verse 1, I don't have my, let me get myself back where I'm supposed to be. I was not quite there. I thought I was there. we go. Um, chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. It says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So the first part we see that the Bible says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him. The young nation of Israel was developed in Egypt in the land of Goshen. Right? We know that Jacob went into, uh, was who was renamed Israel. Well, he took his family in the time of famine into the land of Goshen in Egypt as protection that God had provided for Joseph. Well, Goshen was an interesting place because the Egyptians didn't want anything to do with socially with the Jews. So they were able to go to their own area of Egypt and kind of be exiled there. Not exiled, but kind of quarantine you could say the Egyptians really didn't have much to do with them they kind of come and go but they didn't want to live among them and so therefore they were able to stay in this own land and grow uh, peacefully for hundreds of years so they were able to do that and they were able to grow the nation so God actually created this he of course God's in control of everything and so he he provided this time period of Goshen where the children were were safe and were able to grow and became a pretty large nation, uh, numbering in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people during that time period. He says here then, and that uh, he said, and so when Israel was a child, then I loved him. So he loved them from the beginning. He loved this nation of Israel from the beginning of time when they first created them. They were his prize joy. You know, they were his firstborn, you could say. Uh, they were his nation that he chose. He says, and he called my son out of Egypt. Uh, God raised Pharaoh to enslave the Israelites. God raised him up to enslave the Israelites so that they would leave the comforts. You know, sometimes God got to, uh, we had a pastor many years ago, Ricky Evans, who said uh, that sometimes God's got to burn your barley fields. You know, sometimes it takes burning your barley fields to get off your couch and go do something. You know, uh, there's a um, there's a former president of of uh, uh, High Point University. Uh, I, I would do injustice to repeat his name, but he had a statement. They said he said people change when the pain of change 
is less than the pain of staying the same. I'll say it again. The pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. See, if, if it's easy, people will keep doing it. You know, people, to give you an example, people lose weight when their doctor says, if you don't lose weight, you're going to die. Uh, that's when people say, hey, maybe I need to lose weight. You know, um, people go out and get them a job when they feel like if I don't get me a job, I don't make some money, I'm going to starve to death. So they do that, you know. So people change when the pain of staying the same is, is I mean, the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. So uh, we see, though, that this is also, this verse, I call my son of Egypt, is also a prophecy. We know it's a prophecy because it was repeated in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, 15. Uh, the Bible says, and he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. So we see this, this was a prophetic statement from God in Hosea that told that Jesus would be called out of Egypt. Um, God wanted his people to know this prophecy. God wanted his people to know this prophecy that he was doing here in Hebrew and, and Hosea, I mean, was based upon his love for them. In spite of all that they had done, in spite of all the punishment that was going to come their way, which he had already read. Remember, this is the latter part. In spite of all those things, they would still, he would still have them come back. Hope for their resurrection. He wanted them to know that he still loved them. He had to do what he had to do, not because he wanted it to. You know, sometimes we as parents have to punish our children. And we would rather take it ourselves than punish our children. But we know that if we don't punish our children, they won't grow up to understanding cause and effect. They will understand that there's a cost to be paid for doing something wrong. And so we have to do that. So look at verse 2. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burnt incenses to graven images. And so the first part, as they called them, so they went from them. So God sent many prophets to the nation of Israel to warn them of the coming destruction. You know, I mean, how many, right? Uh, the people responded by turning away in contempt. Uh, Isaiah 2.27 says, Saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their backs unto me, and not their face, in their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. So we see here that, that, that as they called them, they being the prophets, as the prophets went and called them, they ran away from the word. You know, you can do one thing with the word of God. You can accept the word of God and change, or you can reject the word of God and, and go further into sin. That's really the only choice you have. To accept the word of God and change, to repent, to do something different, or you can continue on your pathway by rejecting what God has said. Well, this is what the Israelites did. So as the disciple, as the, the, as the prophets called them, they, so they went from them. They went further away. We see the Bible then says, they sacrificed unto Balaam and burnt incense to graven images. So we see that as the prophets told them the right thing to do, instead they went away from them. Balaam, by the way, is plural for the, the god Baal. So it wasn't just Baal that they were worshiping. They were worshiping any false god, fictitious gods of other nations, particularly those of the Canaanites. Uh, they just, they went further away. Again, like I said, you either change 
or you go deeper into sin. Now, interesting enough, though, these people may still have been offering sacrifices to the Lord and celebrating his feast while also worshiping idols. So they were still going to church, but living in sin. Uh, what? People going to church, but still living in sin? Look around, folks. Wake up. We see that We see that in our churches on Sundays when we go to church. We see people who come in on Sunday morning, and that's the only time they darken the door. And the rest of the time we see on Facebook them living in sin. We'll get somebody says the church full of hypocrites. Thank God it's full of hypocrites. Come on. Let the word of God penetrate your hearts. Because when you hear the word of God, you've got a choice to repent and make a change or to go deeper into sin. But at least sometimes, and sometimes God got to burn your barley fields. Uh, many American churches and Christians are so-called, are doing the same thing today though, aren't they? They may practice many of the ordinances. They may talk the talk. But they accept sin. They accept abominations into their services and into their churches. This was same is true of the nation of Hosea at the time. I mean, you know, I, and I had this conversation with you last week, and we're not going to try to get on it this week, but a perfect example is uh, churches who are in favor of, uh, that, are in fa that, that, that support uh, abortion rights. Abortion rights, innocent blood? You as a church, a Christian church, are in favor of, of allowing people to murder innocent children? I, I just don't get it. That's impossible. So therefore, you're just the same as these northern Israelites were. The nation of Israel people were. They would continue to practice the sinfulness, yet come into church and get the peace. Oh, I've done the sacrifices. That's what they were doing. The nation of Israel's heart was untrue to the very God. Let me tell you, you can fake it. People say, fake it till you make it. You can fake it and fake it and fake it. But God knows the truth. If you're not right with God, God knows it. These Israelis were pretending to worship God, and God knew it, and God called them out for it. Verse 7a, he jumps to verse 7. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. So God says, my people, even though these people rejected God, he still claimed them as his own. He loved them no matter what their actions were. He loves us no matter what our actions are. You know, as we see that love does not change the penalty for their rejection of his love, we see God's love does not change the penalty for the sin. You know, we can love our children, but if our children do wrong, they have to be punished. That doesn't mean we don't love them. It just means that it means we love them more. We have to do what we say we're going to do. You know, a parent says, don't do that. If you do that, I'm going to do this. Then you don't do it. You say, I'm going to do this, but then you don't do it. Well, you have to while the kid's going to say, yeah, they just talk. They're not going to do it. You have to do what you say. You have to be firm about what you say. If you say this, you have to do it. God said this, so he was going to have to do it. He loved his people. He loved them all his heart. He gave his son to die for their sins. And for the nation of Israel and the whole world, God loved his people. He loved Jacob. He loved David. He loved Moses. He loved Abraham. He loved the nation of Israel. He loved them. 
But because of their sin, they were going to have to pay the price. But he said, and my people. God said, these are my people. And they are bent to backsliding from me. They not only backslided from me, but they do it on purpose. This wasn't an accident. Oops, I slipped into sin. Uh, uh, we find ourselves drifting away from God, you know, because we all do that. We all have highs and lows in life. And sometimes we find ourselves drifting away from God. He gently pushes us back into his fold by showing us our sins. When we know our sins, but boldly continue to do them, now that's a different story. These people were determined to backslide from God. They weren't slipping into sin. They were practicing it. They were the ones who come to church on Sunday morning, and then the rest of the week they're out there drinking their Bud Lights and and uh, smoking their joints and and uh, uh, watching their porno and whatever they might be doing. They know what they're doing is wrong, but they continue to do it. And sometimes they brag about it. I see that on Facebook. But we see, he said, my people, my people are bent to backsliding from me. I think he said that the American churches today. They're bent on backsliding from me. Verse 7b says, though they called them, though they called them to the high, most high, none at all would exalt him. They, the prophets, so they, though the prophets called them, preached the word since from God to them, right? They preached. Though they called them to the Most High, they preached the word. Though your preachers are standing in the pulpit today preaching the word, it says none would exalt them. He reminds them that their God and his promises are good and they are bad. None of them would exalt them. The people would not listen. They must cease being bent on backsliding and they must lift their praise and honor to God, but they would not. They were bent on backsliding. Are you bent on backsliding today? Are you determined that backsliding is something you want, you're want? you going to do? I don't care about what God says. I'm going to do it. God takes notice of that. He took notice of the Israelites. He takes notice of you. Verse 8 says, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adam? How shall I set thee as Abom? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. God is asking the questions of the nation of Israel. How can I, God, give you, give up on you, the nation of Israel? How can I give up on you? You're making it hard for me to deliver you from punishment that you deserve. How can I destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Because see, Adam and Zeboam were sister cities that were also destroyed along with these cities. They were in the same proximity. And he said, how can I destroy these cities? And let you go unpunished. God is pleading with them to repent and to turn. So he would not have to do the evil that he knowed they deserved. See, God wants them to do the right thing. If they would only stop, then I wouldn't have to punish them. If they would only follow me, I won't have to do what they need to do. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? See, God is pleading with them, please stop. How many of you have told somebody, just stop? Why are you doing this? Just stop. 
God is pleading them. You can hear him pleading with them. Please stop. Why are you bent on backsliding? I have no pleasure in what I'm going to do. I have no pleasure in destroying the wicked. And that, by the way, not just the Israelites. It's any of the wicked. God has no pleasure on sending people to hell. None. But he says, turn ye from your evil ways and live. But they wouldn't do it. He says, mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. God's telling the people, I have to do something I do not want to do, but you're forcing me to be not what I want to be to you. God is saying, I want to be your loving father and give you blessings and make your ways great, but you're forcing me to be the punisher, to be the judge, to be the a deliverer of evil to you. Not evil, but you know, evil being not what you want. Look at verse 9. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. I will not enter into the city. He says God is telling them his anger is tempered by his love for them. He says, I will not execute fitness of my anger. I won't do it because I'm angry with you. I do it because I have to. I'm not doing it because you make me mad. I'm doing it because you have forced me to do it. I'm giving you judgment because you made me do it. You have, you have called my hand. You said, if you were playing cards, and some of them playing cards, that's okay. You were saying, I, you know, You've called my bluff. It's not a bluff. I've got to lay it down now. I've got to show you what I mean. I'm not bluffing, God says. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. This is prophetic. We know Israel was destroyed and still dispersed among the lost tribes are still out there dispersed. Once they've established their millennial kingdom, God is saying here he will never have to punish them again for their disobedience. Never again, when God establishes the millennial reign of Christ and the nation of Israel is primo again, and Jesus is in the center of it as the king, he will not have to punish them again. Ephraim, by the way, is the name of the, the largest tribe of the northern kingdom was Ephraim. And so just like the southern tribe was Judah, the upper tribe was Ephraim. That's why God uses the phrase Ephraim. is really talking about the northern nation of Israel. He says, for I am God and not man. Stop thinking of me as man, he says. I'm God. My promises are true. I will keep my promises. I act upon my love for you, and that is not the same as a man acts upon his own desires first and then that of others. See, we as men oftentimes think, how is this going to affect me? God's view is, how is it going to affect the man? How can I help them? Be what they ought to be. How can I do for them? How can I, if I have to send plagues their way, if I have to, if I have to send blessings their way, if I have to send prophets their way, if I have to send destruction their way, if I have to send uh, again great wondrous things their way, I'm God. I will do what I need to do. Don't think of me as man. Think of me as God. I'm not like man. Um. He says, he says, the Holy One in the midst of thee. He says, I am peculiarly, peculiarly, I can't say the word, your God. I am your God. I am in the midst of Israel. 
I'm in the midst of the Israeli people. I am different from you. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent, hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? And Isaiah 55, 8, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, saith the Lord. See, God is not man. He doesn't think like we do. Thank goodness for that, because we would have envy and strife, and we'd hold grudges, and we can't forget. One thing I can't forget, I can forgive people, but I can't forget it. I still remember it, which means it's still going to affect the way I treat them. Even though I may not hold a grudge against them, I'm still going to remember it. So therefore, my actions will be based upon what I remember. It's, it's just it's my nature, my nature that way. God is not nature like we are. He forgives all our sins and wipes them out. He says, I will not enter into the city. This is meant as entering the city to destroy it by wrath, as warriors to defeat it. I'm not coming in to destroy it. He would not come into them like that, but would come to punish them because of their sins. He's not coming in like, like remember Nebuchadnezzar came into the, to the, uh, the kingdom of Judah and destroyed and burned all the stuff. He came in mad. What he did, he did out of mad. He was mad because they rejected him. His vengeance, his fury. God punished the nation of Israel because of their sins. Not because he wanted to. Because he said he does not enjoy, he does not get pleasure from the death of the wicked. He did it because he had to. Verse 10 says, And they shall walk after the Lord. They, he shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then... The Lord, he shall, uh, then he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. They shall walk after the Lord. This is a picture of the redemptive restoration of the power of God. These same people that currently reject the Lord will later be restored and then will walk with the Lord. They'll follow his ways. Of course, this is again a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. He shall roar like a lion. This will be called the nation of Israel. This will be the call for the nation of Israel to return home. We've seen this roar since May. The roar. They will hear the roar. They will hear the majesty. They will start moving back to the homeland, back to Palestine, because they hear the roar of the lion. We hear that today. It's been roaring since 1948. Thank goodness America still stands strong with them as a whole. We see during the Greek period of the control over Palestine, in history, the Greek period of control over Palestine, Alexander the Great created the city of Alexandria. And he established it as a safe haven for the Jews, giving them the same privileges as anybody. And they even allowed them, they built a temple, a Jewish temple there that they could sacrifice on and worship there um, to meet their needs. It's estimated the height of Alexander, there was over one million Jews living there. So in, the, in Egypt, where, where Alexandria was, the southern kingdom would return from the east. One day, those people, the, the, the northern tribe, will come out of that area where most of them were at, and they will come from the east. I mean, from the west. The southern kingdom came out of the east, where they came from Babylon. Uh, so we see that there will be a, a regathering of them. God will bring them out and regather them. Again, this is prophetic. It's not something that happened today. Now we go into chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feedeth on wind and followeth after east wind. He daily increases, increaseth lies and desolation. And they do make a covenant with the Assyrians. And oil is carried into Egypt. This prophecy was delivered about the time of Israel seeking the aid of the Egyptian king. So in violation of the covenant with Syria. See, so remember, the Assyrians were at war with the Egyptians. 
So we see that here the nation of the northern nation of Israel was playing both sides. They made a covenant with Assyrians, yet they gave oil to the Egyptians to uh, uh, to, to to help the, to to kind of uh, store that up. It was a political, but both of these groups were heathens. And because of that, they brought things into their society. Ephraim feedeth on wind. Ephraim was the larger tribe in the northern tribe kingdom, as we said, and represented the entire northern kingdom. So when we said Ephraim, we're talking about the nation of, we're talking about that. Feedeth on the wind, the nation was feeding their desires by going after these vain objects. They saw their alliances with idolatrous nations. They feedeth on the wind. What was coming, whatever was blowing their way, you could say. Ephraim is going at whatever blowing their way. He says he daily increases lies and desolation. They just keep adding more lies upon lies, even deceiving themselves. You know, it's pretty bad. That's why I tell you today, atheist. There's no such thing as an atheist. An atheist is someone who has gone to the point where they deceive themselves. They're lying to themselves because reality, they know there's a God. You can't look around and tell me there's not. Romans chapter 1 says, for the invisible things of the world. His power and God is are clearly seen. Only people that would think there's no God is idiots. People who are lying to themselves, they fool themselves. And here we see they increase daily lies and destruction. These people lying to themselves. Desolation refers to the violent oppression practiced by the leaders. So not only were the, the leaders of that time, the kings were corrupt. They were doing like genocide and everything else on their own people. This was not a godly nation. Instead of relying on the relationship with God, they created, established a covenant with the Assyrians, major bell worships, and they did the, uh, again, they did, uh, they, they did an agreement, sent oil to Egypt to have a partnership. America cannot trust ungodly nations, folks. I've told you this, one thing for sure, as Christians, we must remember, we can't trust the lost. We just can't trust the lost. No matter how good they are, we can't trust them. You know, always be weary. Unfortunately, that's sometimes true of Christians or people who proclaim to be Christians. We know they're not because of the way they act. Um, but Americans cannot trust ungodly nations. They influence us and not for the good. Churches need to take note too. Uh, do not conform to this world thinking if we look like them and act like them, they will become us. That makes no sense at all. If you look like them and act like them, you are them. So be different. Be peculiar people, as the Bible tells us to be. We Christians must take note what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had obtained mercy, but now have, a, but have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. See, God says we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what he's telling the people of Israel. That you should show forth the praise of him who called you out of darkness. Verse 2 says, The Lord hath also a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his doings, will he recompense him. See, God tells the nation of northern nation of Israel, because they say, hey, but well, what about Judah? Hey, they're doing some bad stuff too. They did, because at the time, Ahaz was there, and Ahaz was taking Judah into idolatry with major Baal worship. We know the story that went on with that time period, if you don't read it for yourself. But we know he was saying that, that don't worry about Jacob. 
I know what Jacob's doing. I'm going to send punishers to them. You don't worry about it. I got it. I see what they're doing. This is also a message for America. You know what? If God didn't spare Israel because of their sins and idolatry, why in the world would he save us? Why in the world? Think about it. Okay, I'm thinking, uh, why would God save us? Uh, 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 uh. He wouldn't. <laughs> if God did this to his favorite nation of Israel because of their sin, what makes America think, like the northern tribe of Israel, that because we're blessed of God, we can do no wrong, that God will not do anything wrong? That is not acceptable, folks. If God punished the nation of Israel, you can bet you he's going to punish us too. This is what he's telling the nation of Israel. Hey, don't worry about Judah. I see their sins, and they're going to pay the price. He said, according to his doings, he will recompense him. Uh, let's go to verse 6. Therefore, turn thou to thy God. Keep mercy and judgments, and wait on thy God continually. He said, okay, listen. I'm telling you now, this is happening, but you know what? Turn, turn or burn, he says. This is the sense of reasoning. He says, I have presented you with the facts. I have presented you with the penalty. I have presented you with a way out. And now I'm giving you a choice. Isn't that what God does for us? He presents us a fact of our sin. He presents us a penalty for sin is death. He presents us a way out. For whosoever shall confess in thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in thine heart that God that raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He's given us a choice. And we can make that choice. Now, he says, then he goes on and says, uh, Turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgments. Mercy is unmerited favor to those who do not deserve it. He said, now you as a nation, when you're right with me, you'll show mercy to other people. We as Christians need to be merciful to other people. People who don't deserve our mercy, we need to give them mercy. Why? Because God gave us the ultimate mercy. Judgment. We need to be just in everything that we deal. We don't need to be cheating people. We don't need to be deceiving people. There are some people that use the church to build relationships so they can sell their wares, but they're not right with God. <clears throat> Find ways of cheating people. And he says, keep mercy and judgments. If you're, once you get right, once the nation of Israel is right, you're going to have mercy and judgment. These are two outward signs that a person has been saved, by the way. If they show mercy to other people and if they show justice in their actions. And then he says, wait on God continually. This means to trust in God no matter the circumstances. Always and forever, day in and day out, trust in God. No matter what, I've said this over and over again, my God can do anything. There is nothing he cannot do. Will he? I don't know about that. I don't know if he will or not. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. I don't know, but I trust him to do the right thing. I pray for him. I pray his will be done in heaven and in earth. So God always trusts in God. Verse 7, he's a merchant. The balance of deceit are in his hands. He loveth to oppress. He is referring to the nation of Israel. The word merchant was is a word that refers to the Canaan or the Canaanites. It's a double meaning. See, the Canaanites were merchants and they're known for their cheating ways. So they say Israel is like the Canaanites. They're a bunch of cheaters. They're deceivers. They got double tongues. The, the meaning of this is that Jacob have that the, the sons of Jacob here have be basically become 
Nothing more than those that they despise because of evil ways. They, they say, we hate those people and you become those people. That's what he's telling them here. He compares them to cheating store owners. Verse 8 says, And Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich. I found me out substance in all my labors. They shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. So he said that the northern side said, Notwithstanding this, Israel's heart response. They, they respond to the previous verse. And he says, Hey, I don't care what the prophet says. Uh, I like what I have. And what I'm doing to get it. I don't mind doing what I'm doing. I found a way to get what I want, and I'm just going to continue to do that. See, because since God is blessing me and giving me what I want, he must be okay with it. If God's blessing me through my efforts, there can't be anything wrong with it, and it's therefore not sin. That was their thinking. That was their thinking. Listen, I don't care what the prophet said, because if, if I was doing something wrong, God would be penalizing us. But we have great, we have riches and wealth. And we're doing, we're great. Everything's going great. Everything's hunky-dory. Is that what America thinks today? Everything's going hunky-dory, so God must be blessing America. We don't have to worry about it. God's going to keep America up. God's going to keep America strong. Listen, folks, there's sin in our midst. God is telling you, if I did not spare the nation of Israel, I'm not sparing you. Verse 9, he says, and I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of solemn feasts. During the feast days, people lived in temporary huts to remember the days that God carried them through the wilderness. To restore the nation back to the way he planned, God is telling them that they'll have to experience the following things. Just as you were exiled in Egypt, I'm going to make you experience that same purifying again. You know, what worked before to get you purified, i got to do it again. He says in verse 10, I have also spoken by the prophets that I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. But this time, God has spoken to these people on these issues 11 prophets before Hosea. 11 prophets has come and given these people the word. He's given them visions. Similitudes mean puzzles or parables he's used. Basically, he's used every method of communication that were available at that time to get the message across. Has not God done that today? Look, today we're on the internet today. Uh, we're broadcasting today. After a while, I'm going to be standing in front of people preaching, and it'll be live streamed. The point is, God is able to do things today he wasn't able to do before, but back then he did everything he could do. He gave them every form of communication possible for them to know the truth. But we see in verse 11, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely there are vanities. They sacrifice bullocks in Gilead, yet yea, their altars are as heaps in the furrow of the fields. God gives an example that Gilead is now a place of idolatry. And you know, he said, I've given you every right, but now I'm looking over here at Gilead and it, it, you got so many, so many altars to Baal and other gods. It looks like a, a heaps of stones everywhere. All over the city, people are sacrificing the false gods. Verse 12, And Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for a wife, and a wife he kept sheep. God uses another example. Jacob, remember Jacob when he was fleeing Laban. Laban was his father-in-law. But he was fleeing, he was fleeing from uh, uh, his brother Esau and fled to Laban, thinking that he'd be safe there, that things would go wonder for him because he's afraid. He winded up getting a wife or two, 
by working for Laban, but eventually he had to flee from Laban because that's not where he was supposed to be. And Laban was cheating him because he wasn't right with God. See, you can't trust the ungodly. Even his father-in-law, he couldn't trust him. And so he wouldn't let him leave, so he had to leave. He had to, in the middle of the night, run off and flee. Jacob forgot that God had promised him that he would make of him a great nation and did not trust God as he fleed from Laban. See, Jacob had forgotten that God was going to protect him. Verse 13 says, And by a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet was he preserved. The prophet here is refers to as Moses. Moses led God's people out of Egypt. And Moses prayed that God would forgive his people when they exercised poor judgment. Remember that God was going to kill, destroy the nation of Israel because of their wickedness. And the prophet had to pray to God. Deuteronomy 9, 13, 14 says, Furthermore, the Lord spake unto me, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, is a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of thee a nation mightier and greater than they. See, the prophet... <laughs> God has said, look, these people, I mean, what's going on with these people here? And Moses said, Lord, please let give them a chance. See, God was not, God wanted to see what Moses would do, what type of leader he was, and how he would stand up for his people, and, and he did. Verse 14, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore shall he leave his blood upon him, and reproach shall his Lord return unto him. Israel will not repent of their sins. Israel will not repent of their sins. God promised them the consequences will be such. A, God's protection will be withdrawn, resulting in much bloodshed from their enemies. And two, God will demonstrate his justice to this wicked nation. So conclusion today. Just as God dealt with Judah in the lessons we studied over the last few months, he judged the northern nation of Israel too. They were not guiltless. He did not want to harm them, and he pleaded with them, please turn or burn. He stated he had no desire to worship, to, to, had no desire to destroy the wicked, but justice demanded it. And finally, the nation of Israel felt because they were the chosen people, actually, not finally, the nation of Israel felt because they were the chosen people and they were joy blessings that God must be on their side. You know, Jim Baker, if you remember many years ago, there's a ministry called PTL. He wrote a book after this thing where he was caught in sin and embezzling people and all that. He wrote a book that says, I was wrong. Everyone around him told him that what he was doing was all right because he's a man of God. Well, in this book, he tells them that because they were telling him, well, since you're a man of God, everything is good, everything is right. Well, he wrote this book, and the book title tells you the conclusion of the author. That he was wrong. See, just because you're just because you're a Christian doesn't mean everything you do is right. You got to stay true with God. Not what you do is right. What God tells you to do is was right. Just as the nation of Israel that was blessed beyond any other, so was America today. You know, we must take note of the same sins that the nation participated in. God will not hold America blameless much longer. Let's pray that God that we will turn back to God before it's too late. For America is not where it ought to be. And as we saw from the nation of Israel, that they were experiencing good times while doing evil. So is America. Let's pray for America and pray for our land 
and pray for that God's will be done. Lord, I thank you for what you've done for us. I pray for this lesson today. I pray, Lord, that you would take it. Help us, Lord, to understand that as the nation of Israel was loved by God, just as America is loved by God, clearly God has blessed America. But just as the nation of Israel that was loved by God had to be punished for their sin, so does America today. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah had to be destroyed because of their sins, God said, I cannot let you continue. That would not be fair to Sodom and Gomorrah. God is saying it to America today. I pray, Lord, that today people will get their hearts and rights, my hearts and minds straight with you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your time, your attention. And uh, we uh, look forward to uh, speaking with you next week. Thank you.